suddenly appearing in Tunisia wearing parkas, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two men who will never understand the mysteries of Lost, Mark Kaiser and Wade Major. Uh, Mark, I'm I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if Iron Man 3, of all things, winds up being the most successful superhero movie of all time, I'm just going to pack up and go to Tuscany and just pick grapes. Oh, that's impossible, because The Avengers is uh, going to be the all-time biggest. All, I mean, maybe if there's a Justice League movie someday. Y- yeah, I, I, didn't, I don't know. Or The Avengers 2. Look, I'm just saying Iron Man 3 is steamrolling. I, I mean, know. globally, globally. Globally, it's making a ridiculous amount of money. Well, it was it was it was made to steam. If if you read my review of the film at Alt Film Guide, yeah, just Google Alt Film Guide and my name. Mm-hmm. I kind of rip into the movie for just showing such fealty to China and how they change the nationality of the villain so that China is not pissed off. It pokes fun at America. You know, it uh, it puts a lot of Chinese products as product placement, which the Chinese hate, by the way. It just they it, hated that. It's somehow the movie's been massaged Oy. to to appeal to China and appeal to the film censorship committee, the the committee that green lights uh, the thirty four foreign films a year that are allowed to play yeah. in China. Yeah, well, we'll see. It's just it's just making a ridiculous amount of money. And on a different note, uh, another little bit of news I want to make mention of. You know, there's something really interesting going on with Netflix. Um, the, there's a whole changing of the guard with the Netflix library, and I think a lot of people are getting kind of pissed off about the streaming thing. For example, Warner Brothers yanked back hundreds of their titles, which are now available only through Warner's, Warner's proprietary streaming. Universal did the same thing. MGM did the same thing. A lot of the studios are, are saying, you know what, we, we can make more money if we just uh, you know, rent these things on a, on, a need, on, on a per basis or if we have some kind of a streaming subscription thing on our own, if we're handling our own titles, we can do better. And uh, Netflix, of course, is scrambling to replace them with other licenses. But ultimately, you know, Netflix is the go-to place for people to see new movies and, and anything that they want to see. I think everyone assumes that everything is on Netflix. And if they go to Netflix streaming and they don't find something, they're going to say, well, what the hell am I spending $7 a month for? Well, there's increasingly less. I mean, I think on May 1st, Netflix lost like a couple thousand movies. Like a couple thousand movies went back yep. to whoever yep. owned the rights previously. Yeah. You know, well, that was well, that was well, that was part of that it was the Warner thing and there's Universal in there as well. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a fiasco. I mean, there's a there literally there was a bunch of expired licensing deals from like MGM, Warner Brothers and I think Universal. And you know, that includes films like Adaptation and Cruel Intentions and Reality Bites and a bunch of James Bond films. And, you know, OK, it was also Big Daddy. But, uh, you know, but again, Netflix is hoping that the movies that they add make up for the movies that they lose. Like on Netflix now is, you know, Pulp Fiction and Chinatown and Dirty Dancing. So it, it, it really depends. But the day the day where we thought Netflix would just be the be all end all. No, I never I never thought that. Yeah, I think the, the, those are over. I never thought that. You, you can't uh, they're, they're a sub licensor. It's just never going to be the case. Sub licensors are always going to lose their licenses and they're always going to be playing this play, uh, this game of having to replace what they're losing. It's what it is what an old teacher of mine, a high school teacher of mine, Ken F Curry, who taught uh, sales training and all the business classes in high school, KFC were his initials. And he even looked like the like the colonel. Um, Ken F. Curry called it the leaky barrel theory. I've never forgotten that. The leaky barrel theory. You always got to keep replenishing the barrel. And that's also why they are replenishing the barrel with original shows like yes. House of Cards and Hemlock Grove. Yep. Well, we're going uh, to start the show talking about some television, Mark. Oh, we're going to talk about some television. I'm going to talk about what may be the single most extraordinary television movie production in history, anywhere in the world. That's right. We waited generations upon generations for this movie. This is the movie that was that television was invented for. Television never fully realized its potential until the airing of Liz and Dick. And that's right. I'm talking about Liz and Dick, the biofilm about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, a love story for the ages, as it says, starring Lindsay Lohan as Elizabeth Taylor and some guy named Grant Bowler as Richard Burton. Um, this, Mark, this, this is amazing. Have you seen this? 
You know, this was uh, I work at a cable network that uh, <laughs> that uh, that discusses Lindsay Lohan obsessively. Yeah, and this was and oh the my thing is that is that this was seen at my cable network for some reason. This was seen as like the comeback that's going to make her the greatest thing ever, but they don't realize that like it's a lifetime oh. film directed by a nobody. And I, I, I don't know that they look at it that way. Oh. They just look at it like oh, no. I don't know what I don't. I don't they, they don't look at it like like business people. My network looks at it like I, glamour star red carpet people. And there was no way the film was ever going to be good. I'll tell you, 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 if you watch this movie, if you have not seen this, when you watch it, this is out on DVD from uh, E1 Entertainment, not on Blu-ray. Sad to say, but it's definitely out on DVD. If you watch this, wherever you are. Sitting down, standing up, make sure that you have a pillow directly below your jaw because it's going to drop and it's going to drop hard and it's going to drop repeatedly. This thing is such an outrageously hilarious train wreck. This is a camp classic. Uh, this is the kind of movie that will play on the monitors at, uh, at gay clubs for, as, a, as like the, the, uh, you know, a, a drinking game uh, Thing it, for generations. This is just unbelievable. It is. It, it is this generation's uh, mommy dearest. Oh my gosh! It's just so far beyond. It is an absolute, just an, a riot. It is a total hoot. And uh, I had no idea. I didn't see it in the initial uh, broadcast. And uh, it's just, it's a riot. It really is funny. You just can't believe how bad it is. I, I just, I don't know what it was like on the set when they were doing takes. And they're like, oh, take perfect, great. I mean, day one, day one, first performance, first take. Everyone must have just looked at each other and just said, "Oh, this is going to suck. Well, what are we doing here? Well, why not just follow through? Look, they Let's know just finish it, it up. They know it's a lifetime film. Uh, you know, Lindsay Lohan was you know unhirable, very hard to ensure. Oh my gosh! Uh, I just think that uh, people were thinking this movie would be a comeback. I, yeah, I, I don't understand. No, I don't either. Well, anyway, uh, and then uh, not quite as as horrible <laughs> is, is Steel Magnolias. Um, no, not the not the original movie, Steel Magnolias. This is one, one of these weird things that we're doing now where um, we have to kind of, because we're a colorblind society, we have to take uh, everything that once had an all-white cast, and now we're going to try to do it with an all-black cast. I don't really understand the point of that, to be honest. Um, it, it, I, I realized like that this is kind of a, a cute game that, we, that, that a lot of people want to play. I mean, the first one was... Um, uh, the uh, death at a funeral. That's right. Which was like, I don't know, really. This this is a good idea because the original was perfectly fine. It wasn't a race thing. Do we have to sort of take Martin Lawrence and all these black actors and throw them into a into a almost verbatim remake of a, of a really fun British comedy and somehow that makes it fresh? Why not just make fresh original films with you know black casts or movies where race is irrelevant? I don't know. It almost seems like. They're trying too hard. So this is an all-black Steel Magnolias with Queen Latifah and Felicia Rashad and uh, Alfre Woodard. And these actresses have all done much better material. And really, frankly, this movie didn't need to be made again. Um, it, you know, it just, I don't get it. It's based on a play, obviously, by Robert Harling. And the play isn't, isn't race-specific. But... I don't know uh, why. I, I'm sort of mystified. So uh, that being said, it's, it, it just feels like it's beating a dead horse. And uh, there's nothing g- grotesquely offensive about it. There's no reason they shouldn't do this. But I just feel like en- these energies could be better put into uh, other areas. Oh, Wade, you're such a hater. Anyway, uh, season seven of uh, Dexter is now out on Blu-ray. This is uh, the season that began uh, last September. And uh, this is a decent season. What I like about this season, although I, I really dipped in and out of the show over the years, is that uh, the directors that they have are really good directors. John Dahl directed uh, the first episode of uh, season seven. And you get directors like uh, Ernest Dickerson, the great uh, cinematographer, Spike Lee cinematographer. And then you have uh, Michael Lehman, who, of course, directed Heathers, uh, one of the great uh, you know, teen films of the last generation. I hate to say last generation because it means, cause it means I'm old. But anyway, uh, Dexter, you know, I, I, I don't know how long Dexter can keep killing people and, like, having people cover for him uh, and I not getting know. caught and, you know, d- dealing with the mafia. And it's, I think Dexter should just 
this is just die. Not to sort of revisit last week a little bit, but this is the problem that I have with television shows now versus when when China Beach was on the Ugh, air. China I know, Beach. I know. I'm still I'm still pushing the China Ugh, Beach. The worst. But, but shows now get they get uh, greenlit based on how sort of sizzling the premise is, right? I mean, we have serial killers galore on television now. There's 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 we've got the Hannibal show, and we've got the. Uh, uh, the uh, the the friggin psycho thing, you know, uh, and and suddenly that's all. This is all. These are all the evil stepchildren of Dexter. Now they're like, wow, Dexter took off. Well, let's go back and resurrect, uh, you know, Hitchcock, Psycho, and Silence of the Lambs as TV series. Come on, stop. You have to have something that sustains from week to week, and just this raw premise of uh, oh, he's a killer and he kills every week, uh, or, or, or this is what made him a killer. It's not enough. You know, China Beach didn't. It, China Beach was about. Medical technicians during the Vietnam War. There's no, this is going to happen every week. It was just about people. It was a setting within which people interact and have human you know, contact. And, and there are all kinds of dilemmas and an opportunity for great writing on a weekly basis. And that, those are the shows that sort of resonate. I don't know, I don't know, what, you know what's happening to television. But I know people are like, it's a golden age of television. I don't see it. You know why you don't see it, Wade? Because uh, you are a hater. But look, yeah. this is part of the reason why movies have to be more and more expensive because they have to... It was funny because like in the, in the 50s, movies introduced technology like Cinemascope to get people out of their homes because TV was taking over. Now, in the 21st century, you've got movies, studios, spending $200 million on films to make them so, so grand that they have true. to get people out of their, out of their homes Absolutely because true. widescreen TVs are bigger and uh, you know, audio setups are better. And also, TV shows are terrific now. I mean, people talk about Game of Thrones way more than they talk about, you know, whatever, some big blockbuster, you know? Yeah, well, all right. That's true. Fine. Mark, you know what a really weird show is? Um, Star Trek? You ever heard of K-9? The series K-9? No, I have not. This is, I, I, did this, I don't know how this completely slipped by me. Uh, I've never heard of this show. I'm not even familiar with the character K-9, who apparently goes all the way back to a 1977 Doctor Who episode called The Invisible Enemy. Uh, This is just like uh, the electronic dog, K-9. And uh, they made a series out of this thing. And um, it all takes place in London, and it's kind of an odd series. It... I don't really get it. Um, it only lasted about a dozen episodes, all of which are on this one set from Shout Factory. This is just a—it's weird television kitsch. I don't—it's almost like Sid and Marty Croft without drugs. You know, like if Sid and Marty Croft woke up one morning and decided to just go stone cold sober and said, "Okay, we're not going to drop any acid today. We're going to try to come up with a show that's really cool and creative, but we're not going to do it on acid." And this is what they would have come up with. It just feels, mm, I don't know. So they were okay. better on acid? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's just, it's just, te- it's just teenagers and, a, and a, a, a robot dog just protecting the galaxy. It's just kind of an odd show. It doesn't really, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't really work. But, uh, you know, it, it, the whole series is there on, D- on DVD. It, uh, it's very strange. Strange bit of, it's, it's weird what lurks in the cracks of television history. I, I'm always amazed at the stuff that I've never heard of that's, that's missed me, and this is one of them. Uh, Wait, in uh, 2007 or so, uh, there was a resurrection of Flash Gordon, and you know, without Flash, without the Queen score, that's true, which is the best. Oh, it's the best. And uh, and what's his name? Who who? What's his name? Who? Okay, don't sing the song. No, what's his name? Who appeared in Ted? Uh, you Mark, didn't see Ted, did you? Uh, and Mark Wahlberg. No, yeah, I, I still haven't. I still haven't watched it. It's Ted. funny. It's a funny movie. But what's his name appears in it? You know the the, the, the oh uh, the, Sam, the, Sam Sam Jones Sam Jones. Yeah. Yes, sweet. They like a, they in the movie Mark Wahlberg reveres Flash Gordon that movie, and so they now, get Sam now Jones. I gotta go watch it for it's sure. funny. It's a Ted's a funny movie. Anyway, uh, Flash Gordon, uh, two thousand seven around there, lasted about twenty two episodes. They tried to reconceptualize it, give it a twenty first century spin. And I just think this thing was a nice try, I guess. Uh, you know, the guy who played Flash Gordon, this guy Eric Johnson from Smallville, he's kind of bland. And, uh, you know, it just feels like they're trying to Smallvilleize uh, Flash Gordon. And I just uh, think it totally did not work. Lame. I would definitely rent the movies or read the comic books 
or check out the Buster Crab cereal. Anything is better than this new incarnation, now uh, thankfully gone, of Flash Gordon. You know, back in the 1930s, Buster Crab had a really cool name when he was playing Flash Gordon and, and Buck Rogers and Tarzan. And he, he just had a cool name, Buster Crab. Now, that name just sounds pornographic. It sounds it, like a porn star's name. It sounds like a disease of some sort. It does. It's just unfortunate. All right. Uh, Private Practice, the complete sixth and final season. This, of course, was the Grey's Anatomy spinoff series. And... Um, if, Boy, that final season came none too soon. Uh, the show's really, really running out of steam. They tried so many ways to tie, kind of reinvent this series and give it a give it a shot in the arm to really kind of uh, you know let the, figure out the chemistry on the show. Chemistry never really worked, uh, and uh, with any of the characters, and it just you know they, they, it was like a Grey's Anatomy spinoff just because they needed a Grey's Anatomy spinoff. And uh, it never really was thought through. So uh, after six years and trying a million different combinations to somehow generate ca- uh, interest on the cast and introducing different characters, bringing different actors in, and hoping that people would finally start watching this thing, they, they just kind of threw in the towel and said that we're done. So anyway, it's, uh, there it is, the final season. Uh, and, uh, you know, go and watch it if you care, if the first five seasons didn't just wear you out. Oh, wait, third season of Rookie Blue is on DVD. Uh, this is just another one of those shows with a bunch of cops. And, and you know what? It's like they, they, they build Rookie Blue as one of those shows that, like, it combines, you know, tough cop action with the lives of these people. You know, the, emotionally, you really feel for them. But you know what? They've been doing that since Hill Street Blue. So stop saying that that's, like, a unique thing. I know. So, and by the way, we're in the third season now. They're not rookies anymore. I'm sorry. It's the third season. They are not rookies and uh, although, you know what, people like, um, what's, uh, what's her name, uh, Missy Peregrim, mm-hmm. uh, she's got kind of this all-American, I think she's Canadian, though, but she's got this all-American uh, look to her. But I just think this is just another one of those shows. And uh, so, you know, not really into Rookie Blue, but uh, people seem to like it. It's lasted three seasons. You know what uh, another one of those shows is? Star Wars. Flashpoint. Uh, this is the fifth season of Flashpoint, which is basically SWAT. Uh, for my generation, it's SWAT. Uh, but since they can't call it SWAT or they didn't want to be compared to the original SWAT or since the, the Colin Farrell SWAT film tanked so badly, they call it uh, Flashpoint. Fifth, fifth uh, series, fifth season in the series. Uh, it's, it, instead of SWAT, this is about the SRU. It's a better name than SWAT, isn't it? SRU. No, SWAT's the best. Because SWAT is special weapons and tactics. But What's SRU? SRU is strategic response unit. Dud. See? It sounds better, doesn't it? It's like, hey, call in the SRU. Calling the shrew, calling the shrew. taming of the sh- t- t- here, right, right away. This, this is this is what when you think of SWAT, <laughs> this is what you think of. Oh no, you're gonna play the theme song. There you go. Thank you. Yes, it is. And it sounds so good when it's coming off of your computer speakers and uh, through the through the microphone. Is that that's, better? Yeah, that's quality. Oh, we're all about. Wait, wait, just get to the fun. Hit the good part. Oh, jeez. You know, um, if this yeah. were if this were a really professional show, we would have planned that ahead of time, and I would have had the audio clip ready to drop in. There was nothing less professional than this show. Ah, <laughs> oh, whatever. Anyway, Flashpoint fifth season. You know, it's well acted, it's well directed, but it's uh, it's ultimately the same kind of crap. You know, it's the same deal. Uh, and then we also have James Michener's Texas. Uh, James Michener went through a phase as a novelist when he was just writing a lot of novels that just had the names of states and countries. Hawaii. And, and each novel Texas, was like 2,000 pages long. Montana. And they were sort of, it, none of it was really all that remarkable, but people were like, oh, Michener. And they made miniseries out of all of them. Uh, this is from 1995. You know, well after. Centennial, I think, kind of was. It wasn't Centennial the first one. Was that the. I know they made a movie of Hawaii with Max von Sydow and Julie Andrews, which was this kind of epic misbegotten clunker but um i think i think centennial was the first big miniseries came around the heels when 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 suddenly roots turned everything into miniseries it was roots and shogun they're like oh hey well we'll just do centennial we'll let that run for the next five years uh anyway james mentioned texas i don't know It, it, it you know you could do better things with three hours of your time um, but, uh, you know, it's, I guess if you were around in 1995 and you have some kind of nostalgic connection to this, this thing, then uh, by all means, uh, go get it. Here's my enthusiastic review. 
Uh, Gunsmoke is uh, trickling out slowly on uh, DVD. We now have uh, the eighth season, Volume oh 1 and gosh. 2. Oh, my gosh. They'll finish that thing up by 2050. I know. Uh, I mean, there were 20 seasons of this show. There was like I 230 know. episodes, literally over 230 episodes of Gunsmoke. I know. Now, this is, you know, we're talking the 50s and, 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 and uh 50s and 60s and I think into the 70s actually but uh, this starred uh, you know a bunch of people Matt Dillon James Arness he was he was the uh, he was the uh, the thing no, yes wait. he was yes he was he was he was he was the cre- the, uh, the, the creature yeah, the, from the black the, the, the thing like no he was the he thing was the, the thing. original thing <laughs> the I mean, thing look. from another world yes it was called the thing from another That's world right. Awesome, greatest thing ever. Anyway, this thing ran from fifty-five to seventy-five, twenty years. You know, they're talking about this. How the you know people always used to say that Gunsmoke was the longest-running TV show ever, and uh, The Simpsons is going to make it, Wade. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> By the way, The Simpsons is good again. <laughs> is it? I mean, it's 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 decent again, and I think we might have talked about this a couple weeks ago because they're finally realizing that the the humor's got to move fast. There's got to be more than two jokes a minute. They got to. They, they, they and I, I like how the the, uh, the the story threads dovetail into each other, like they used to do at the beginning. Um, the last few seasons are better, and it's funny because I think that might be because a lot of the kids who grew up watching and being influenced by the first few seasons of The Simpsons are now writing on The Simpsons. Anyway, Gunsmoke, uh, eighth season, volumes one and two. Stop breaking those up. Enough already. Also, we have another old classic uh, show called Have Gun Will Travel. Now, Have Gun Will Travel is a little... Um, Richard Boone. Huh? I like Richard Boone as it, an actor. It, He's, it, he was sort of, you know, he was like, if Charles Bronson had not had such a huge career, Boone would have had his career. Now the, he would have. I guess. Richard Boone. Yeah. He didn't really... You know what? I, I, I'm not sure this show really resonates with anybody anymore. Uh, it aired from 57 to 63. Richard Boone again played Paladin. And, uh, you know, some of these were directed by uh, Sam Peckinpah. Some were directed by William Conrad. Some were directed by, get this, wait, Ida Lupino. Really? Some of these, yes. Ida Lupino directed some episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel. No kidding. Isn't that bizarre? That's weird. That is weird. I don't know how that wound up happening. But anyway, this is the final season. Of course, they got to break up the final season into volume one and two. And uh, for those who don't know the show, um, the final season will mean nothing to you. But you know what, your parents, actually, you know what, not even your parents, your grandparents might dig Have Gun Will Travel, the final season. <laughs> back when Westerns ruled television. They did. Oh, totally. They, they you ruled kidding? television back then. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, Felicity was originally released as a series from uh, Buena Vista, uh, you know, a- ABC series. Buena Vista at the time was the, uh, the name for, the, uh, the, for Disney's uh, Buena Vista Home Video, Home Entertainment, was Disney's output uh, label, and now they just call it Walt Disney Home Entertainment. Uh, then, then last year, Lionsgate was started re-releasing this stuff. I guess uh, you know, I don't know through what sub-licensing arrangement Lionsgate wound up with it, but they released uh, a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, seasons one and two. And now, for all of those who have been sitting on pins and needles waiting to see what happens in three and seasons three and four of uh, Felicity, assuming that you you know, uh, like twenty years ago, weren't uh, watching the show when everybody else was, uh, now we get seasons three and four. And uh, just some general uh, extras on here, uh, some select audio commentaries that were all part of the uh, original releases. Uh, It's, you know, this show, I guess, still has a bit of a following, Um, you know, co-created by our good friend Matt uh, and J.J., and I guess maybe it's the J.J. thing that keeps uh, this coming back. I don't know. But speaking of, um, you know, because we all know that J.J. rules the universe and the new Star Trek films is going to make him even wealthier than God. But, uh, by the way, Matt is directing the new uh, Planet of the Apes film. Yes. And as another nice little uh, bone to uh, Carrie Russell, whose career has not exactly been on the upswing, he went and gave her a part in the film. Oh, Isn't really? That nice? Yeah, so Carrie Russell's going to be in the new uh, Planet of the Apes Well, film. Carrie Russell was also in J.J. In Star Trek. She played the mother of Captain of James T. Kirk. She only appears in the first scene. James I C. must have blinked. James T. Kirk's parents are, are Carrie Russell and uh, Liam Hemsworth. Boy, I, you know what? Felicity is the series that keeps on giving. J.J. and Matt are going to throw her bones until I the know. end of time. It's true. You know, but there, look, there are plenty of directors who, yeah. who cast you know, she was actors the, repeatedly. She was, the, she was the senior member of that Mickey Mouse Club crew that included uh, Britney Spears and Christina Justin Aguilera Timberlake. and Justin Timberlake. And... You know who the last one is, don't you? Um, Star Wars? No, he, he's, he's a favorite actor of uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Oh, that's right, Ryan Gosling. That's right, Ryan Gosling. By the way, that new film, the, the new Refn film with Gosling, yeah, looks awesome. It really See, does. See, here's the thing. 
it looks awesome. It, it looks subject wise, it looks totally up your alley. Yeah. It's not up my alley subject wise, but because I love Refn so much, and the guy is like, I have a total, complete, unrequited directing man crush on Nicholas Winding Refn. He's so yeah, awesome. I know. I don't care what this guy does. I'll go see it. Great, but, ti- great title too. Only God forgives. It, subject wise, it's totally up your alley. Yeah. But whatever, yeah. I'll be first in line. Yeah. And I, the best thing about the trailer, and I won't tell anybody, go check out the trailer for Only God Forgives. Best thing about the trailer is the last line of the trailer. It's great. You know what it I, is? Right? I saw the trailer, but I don't remember the you last remember the last line? line? The last is, line is great. Is it's it right. Only God Forgives? No, no, it's not. It's, it's really fun. Um, you know what? There was an uh, epic miniseries event, as they claim on the, on the box, of Ben-Hur on television recently, thanks to uh, Sony. Uh, I must have missed that epic event, uh, mercifully. This is horrible. This is just terrible. This is just relentlessly awful beefcake Ben-Hur on television for people who obviously had no idea that a better movie was made in 1959. What the hell were they thinking? This isn't even as... This is like the same length as the movie from 1959. And it's just... It's terrible. It's terrible. Why did they do this? Uh, Sony, stop it. This is an embarrassment. Was this supposed to be... Was this like Ben-Hur for the Twilight crowd? What are they thinking? Dreadful. Absolutely awful. I cannot recommend this in any way whatsoever. And there's a special feature, The Making of Ben-Hur, and you watch it and you go, what's wrong with you people? Why didn't you... Seriously? You're taking yourself this serious? Awful. Just awful. Stop it. So did you like it? No. Not in the least. Actually, it was pretty good. (laughs) You're out of your mind. I know. And then 30 Rock, uh, season seven, the final season. Terrific season, actually. Um, you know, the 30 Rock, I thought, got a little bit uneven in the last little bit, but the, the final season, season seven, is really, really great. A lot of funny stuff. They wrap things up very nicely, and uh, this was, you know, they, a lot of a lot of kind of risky directions on this season. Um, the nice thing here are the uh, bonus features. There are uh, there's some there's a really really uh, some really good stuff here. So uh, the audio commentary with uh, Tina Fey, Jane Krakowski, and uh, Tracy Wigfield, who was a writer producer on the show. Really, really good. Uh, some great deleted scenes, and then the um, Donaghy files. Which uh, did you ever see the Donaghy files? I have uh, not. They're these little animated webisode things. Really fun. Really fun. Alex so, Baldwin is the greatest ever. Yep, he sure is, and he may have a late night show now. Yeah. Uh, well, there was rumors he was going to take over for um, um, Jimmy Fallon when Jimmy Fallon moved down. Well, now they're saying he's going to take over for uh, Carson Daly. Well, no, Carson re-upped. Oh, did he re-up? Yes. Really? Yes. Because they, NBC wanted to, NBC wanted to, wanted to slap that rumor down quickly, and Carson re-up. Now that shows why. Tar- why? Uh, because he's so good. Because that show. No. You realize they've reinvented that show over the course. I mean, it's been stable now for a couple of years, but that show went through like nineteen different incarnations. I, I, I was on that show for five years when it was later with Greg Kinnear. I know, but that, but that, but that, not even just with Carson Daly, it had an audience, and then oh, it didn't have sure. an audience, and then it had a monologue, and then it didn't have a monologue, and then he had guests, and then he didn't have guests, and now he's roaming around L.A. with you know a crew and using using like a, an HDSLR, just shooting interviews with music people. I mean, it's like they, they couldn't figure out their groove. He is not a monologue and an audience late night host guy. He is not. That's I mean, not, he, he no. Just, the the thing is, trying to make him that is well, but it didn't work. And well, here's the thing though, Fallon. Is going to be the assuming they don't Carson assuming they don't Conan O'Brien him, uh, Fallon will be the Tonight Show host for the next thirty years, and True. you know if they wind up with Seth Meyers in that slot, I don't know how he's going to do. That's a, it's possible that Seth Meyers will, will tank, but possible. But they don't have anybody at twelve. The thing is, is that they don't even really necessarily look at other late night shows as being incubators for the Tonight Show and um, late night. I mean, they. I mean, they can pull these people out of anywhere now. I know. You know, it used to be that way. It used to be you would move up and move up, and now Fallon yeah. moved up. But it used to yeah. be. Don't forget, Fallon didn't really move up. Fallon came from SNL. Yeah, that's not a talk show. Well, uh, but also Conan sort of came from SNL too. Conan came from everything. He came Conan, from The Simpsons, Simpsons and, and yeah, yeah, he was great. But anyway, um, NBC did re-up Carson Daly, so they, they definitely wanted to put the, the, right. the kibosh on that rumor quickly. All right. Anyway, uh, wait. Am I supposed to talk about uh, this one here? Yes, please. Wait, this is a show. Yeah. Now, Dr. Kildare, uh, you're thinking to yourself, God, Dr. Kildare, who gives an F? <laughs> Dr. Kildare. I have to say that Dr. Kildare, this thing's been around for a long time. You realize that Dr. Kildare was like a bunch, it was a bunch of films. Yeah. It was like in the 30s or something. Yeah. It was a radio series. And then in the it 60s, it became a TV series. Dr. Kildare is a character who has spanned like literally 50 years. And in the early 60s, 61, it became a medical show on NBC. They did about 190 episodes in five seasons, and uh, it's about a doctor. The guy was an intern, and then he became a doctor, and of course he winds up 
sticking his nose in other people's businesses because that's what doctors aren't supposed to do, but he does it anyway. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, so there was a lot of soap opera elements in Dr. Kildare, but uh, people kind of dug it. It ran for like five years. But totally. um, the first season has been packaged in one DVD set, which is to say that they could not sell them as separate season set, right? You mean nobody would buy the ha- first half of a no. Dr. Kildare? Okay. No. So they decided to package them up. God, why don't they just stop it? It's all your fault. Oh, hell. Uh, speaking of J.J., uh, the complete fifth and final season of Fringe, uh, one of the more misbegotten J.J. series, is out from Warner Brothers on DVD. And uh, J.J. took time out to uh, do a little uh, reflection series reflection thing on this. I don't know how he has time to do anything. He might just sit down and give his reflections on a series that he really probably had next to nothing to do with other than slapping his name on it. Um, but anyway, you, you get a, you know, a Comic-Con panel uh, on the extras here, and uh, you get you know, commentaries and selected episodes, gag reel, unaired scenes. And I don't know. That to, you know the, the series, which I have never really thoroughly watched uh, to any significant degree, glance a little bit at this one uh 13 episodes here in the final season it just still seems like another it seems like a lot of this jj stuff is sort of boilerplate based on what uh they expect from him which is they expect things that are mysterious and post-apocalyptic and a little bit x-filey and uh you know this kind of wedges its way into all of that stuff it's it's these are all sort of the evil stepchildren of um of the twilight zone and i just don't i don't know the, the, this show is so derivative of so many other shows and it never it's a little bit like you know it's like if you've seen lost you you realize that a show that asks you questions every week that are answered by other questions the following week it gets tiresome after a while you can only go to that well once or twice well they they went to that well for whatever six seasons yeah. Uh, season three of the Ricky Gervais show. This is a show that started as a podcast and actually kind of continued as an audio only sort of thing. It's really just animated. Um, and it's funny. Look, R- R- Ricky Gervais deals with uh, he works with the same guys all the time, especially Stephen Merchant and Carl uh, Pilkington. Is the show funny? Yes, I do find Ricky Gervais funny. I'm kind of wondering what this guy's going to do next. You know? Ricky Gervais in your face. That's what he's going to do next. I have very mixed feelings about him hosting the Golden Globes those two years. I thought yeah. he was absolutely unbelievably hilarious, but I don't know that uh, the Golden Globes are very happy about that. But then again, whatever makes the Golden Globes unhappy makes me happy. Isn't it funny how all the, like, the only show that can't seem to land people who actually know how to host shows? I mean, the Oscars have done a few, but, but the Oscars can't ever seem to. Every time somebody's like, that person make a great host, someone else grabs them. Ricky Gervais, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, Neil Patrick Harris. The, the legendary NPH. Uh, Oscars never land any of the cool people. All right. Uh, Friends, which has been out on Blu-ray uh, in the complete series set for a little while now, they are now finally launching each of the individual seasons out on Blu-ray for people who uh, obviously are um, so obsessed with the show that they can't actually get jobs and afford to buy the complete season set. They have to buy these individual seasons. And uh, I don't know how many people that uh, amounts to. Anyway, so we have season one and season two of Friends on individual uh, Blu-ray uh, releases here from Warner Brothers. And uh, I, I'm just going to say the same thing about this that I said about um, China Beach last week, which is it's always interesting to see, to go back to these shows, which we remember primarily from later episodes where everything was firing on all cylinders, and see how all the pieces come together. Because no show, no series worth its salt is ever completely all together at the beginning. Everybody's figuring everybody else out. And uh, that's the interesting thing about Friends. Friends, especially in the first season, those like first five episodes, everything's just kind of starting to, you know, click. Everybody's sort of sniffing around everybody else, and uh, eventually it really it falls into place very nicely. But it's not the most elegant show right out of the gate. By the way, which reminds me, the original, uh, the first uh, few season or so of uh, Three's Company, Chrissy was not stupid. I like Chrissy stupid. That's, that's always bothered me. Later on, they, they reduced her IQ by 10 points every season <laughs> until, like, by the end of that show, she's staring at the wall and, not, and, and thinking it's a person. That first season, she was pretty smart cookie. They by the way. They just turned her into an idiot. By that the way. It always bothered me. I love the show, but that always bothered me. They turned Christy into, Chrissy into an absolute idiot. This is for, uh, this is for, uh, for California-based people of a certain age. Suzanne Summers, yes. who played Chrissy in Three's Company, was married to... Oh, uh, uh, Alan, uh, the, 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 Alan Hamill. Hamill, Alan Hamill. And he used to do commercials for? for the Lucky Supermarket. No. Wasn't it Lucky? What? Alpha Beta. Alpha Beta, that was it. Oh, Alpha my gosh. Beta Supermarkets, oh, Alan Hamill. Gosh. Oh, my goodness. Why don't you just admit still... how awesome that is? 
<laughs> alpha beta. Uh, why, don't, why, don't we go, why don't we just lose all of our listeners by going down the line of all the different supermarket Wait, chains <laughs> that no longer exist in California? Market Basket. Al- May, Market May, Basket. May, Mayfair. Market Basket. Oh, my God. Market Basket. <laughs> Mayfair. Oh. No, were you ready? Yeah. Westward Ho. Oh, Westward Ho. Market Basket. Yeah, I know. That's hilarious. Right? Lucky Alpha Beta. Well, get this. Alpha Beta, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Wikipedia page. Alpha Beta merged with Ralph's. No. And Ralph's is now the big supermarket chain in California. And so did Hughes. Hughes merged with Ralph's. Basically, we only have three supermarkets anymore, uh, or big ones. It, now there's just there's just, uh, it, there's just just Safeway, which became Vons. It died in 1995, Alpha so, Beta. So now, yeah, it's that long. So now we, ju- we basically just have Vons, Ralph's. And Albertsons, and that's kind of it. And then, you said you know, market and then for other people, there's uh, you know, we, we there's things like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. I want a why are we market. talking about why are we talking about markets? <laughs> market. You basket. took us off are you on a tangent. Me? Market Curse basket. You. I haven't thought of that forever. <laughs> oh my god! And with that, you know what, Mark? Sing the song. Oh, we're doing Vox Box. We're doing a Vox Box. It's market basket. Hi, Mark and Wade. I'm a longtime fan of the podcast, been listening for a number of years. My question is, uh, what equipment do you use to record your podcast? What is the process? Um, I know that personally my podcast, I just have a free version of Audacity and a Logitech mic, and that's about all it takes. But uh, do you guys have like a really nice studio setup? Uh, do you have all the fancy bells and whistles? Um, just kind of take me briefly through how you uh, put this podcast together. Keep up the good work. Have a good one, guys. Well, thank you to Brian Swagel for that question. And uh, Mark, yes? I, 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 I can answer that in four words. Yes. Hamster on a wheel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, you know what? We, uh, no, we are very agile here. We, uh, yeah, we got all the bells and whistles. No, uh, GarageBand, man. It's GarageBand on, uh, on a Mac laptop. And then a uh, Radio Shack four-channel stereo sound mixer. And uh, a couple of uh, microphones from uh, also from Radio Shack, and uh, you you plug it all in, and we and we rock and roll, and that's the way and that's the way it works. Wait, are you ready? Yeah, Pup and Taco. Pup and Taco. You remember Pup and Taco? This is no longer a DVD show. Now this is Mark's childhood uh, revisited. <laughs> Fedco. <laughs> oh jeez. Remember Fedco. Federated on uh, on Federated. Fred rated for the Federated yes, group. Fred- yeah. Oh my God! I gotta Google that right now. <laughs> Fred Rated. He was, no, no, Fred um, Rated was played by uh, somebody kind of famous, maybe? Yeah, the guy with the funky name. Uh, what was it? Uh, no, it was Shadow Stevens? Shadow Stevens, yes, it was. It was Shadow Stevens. Wait, here's you know, Fred Rated. The guy with the funky name. Oh, my gosh. We got to cut. We got. So, anyway, Brian, yes, thank you for asking the question. No, we. you know what? It doesn't take a lot to, to do this junk anymore. What you... Oh, stop. Okay. So uh, no, really, we we're we're pretty agile with this. Uh, you know, we we upgrade our equipment every so often. Uh, it would be nice to upgrade it again. I just need to find the time between diaper changes to actually uh, actually do so. But you know, for now, all of this gear serves us uh, sufficiently well. Even if Mark doesn't always talk directly into the microphone, <laughs> you're always, you're always pointing to the mic to tell me to like move my mouth closer to the mic. Well, if, you, if you wore headphones, you'd sort of be aware of that. I don't like it. headphones ruin it messes up my hair. I know that's what, that's what that's what Henry says whenever we do film week. Hen- uh, yeah, yeah, Henry needs to worry. About his looks, <laughs> Henry never wear, Henry never wears headphones when you do film week, and uh, I always do because I want to hear you know the audio representation. So anyway, thank you, Brian Swagel, for that question. And basically, what we're saying is, if you have uh, if you have a Mac laptop and GarageBand, which is free with the Macintosh, and uh, a, a Radio Shack mixer and a couple of microphones and, and wires to hook it all up, you're good to go. It doesn't take much to podcast in this day and age. Remember Farrell's? Oh, jeez, Farrell's was great. Okay. Oh my God. I have a vague, vague memory of this way. Maybe you can help oh. me. I, I, I moved out here when I was 10, so I, I, I don't... Zodi's Department Store. Oh, heavens. Do you remember Zodi's Department Store? No. I remember Zodi's Department Store. I don't know how. The, literally one synapse just fired in my brain uh, yeah. for Zodi's Department Store. That's great. That's oh fantastic. Uh, you, you, you keep talking. <laughs> okay, and I'm going to talk about a movie called Escape. Escape uh, from Zodi's? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, it, it strikes me that the, the, the Hunger Games has sort of precipitated a lot of uh, very strange quasi-knockoff things. This is like this weird uh, medieval knockoff of the Hunger Games. This is uh, allegedly from the creators of the Cold Prey trilogy. I don't know. Is, it, is the Cold Prey trilogy something really that uh, draws people? On a, on a big I, I don't year. know what that is. I don't know. Anyway, well, this is about a uh, a nineteen year old girl who's a lone survivor after this uh, this you know medieval 
things set during the Black Plague, and um, she's a, she's one of these uh, proverbial lone survivors, and um, you know she has to uh, escape and then uh, get all unhinged. And it's clearly just a uh, kind of a lowbrow knockoff of uh, a million different movies, including like I Spit on Your Grave and a lot of these other kind of lone survivor revenge uh, female empowerment movies, but. It uh, it's clearly intended for the Hunger Games crowd. So uh, you know, if you're if you're if you got a daughter who wants to watch some uh, you know girl on guy violence, hey, uh, let her see that one. We also have the uh, Texas Chainsaw 3D monstrosity. I don't know why this thing won't just die once and for all. Somebody needs to take a chainsaw to the Texas Chainsaw series. Um, Texas Chainsaw 3D, stupid, horrible, dumb. Uh, absolutely pointless. There have been too many of these movies. They all do the same thing. There's no reason to... There is no reason under the sun to watch this. Uh, I gave this movie five minutes, and uh, I said, you know what? I have better things to do with my time. I'm going to go play with my daughter. And there we go. I did it. And uh, then we also have Cloud Atlas, a movie which I have very, very mixed feelings about. I don't think it's good. Uh, people told me to read this book forever. They said it's an amazing book. And uh, then they made a movie where the Wachowskis and Tom Tickver uh, somehow took this linear story that was mythical and epic in scope all the way from the distant past into the distant future and all these interlocking stories and they said why don't we just tell all these different stories simultaneously as if they all take place kind of concurrently with the exact same actors playing different roles in each one as if there's some kind of you know reincarnation thing going on and it's an interesting idea it's a hugely ambitious film that that features some of the absolutely most embarrassingly bad makeup you will ever see in motion pictures. And, you know, Hugh Grant does some interesting stuff in this. Uh, Tom Hanks does some interesting stuff. But then, you know, there, there's other stuff that just is just awful. Well, you know, the thing with the book is that the book is it's a lot of plot and a lot of sci-fi and a lot of, you know, souls and, and, sci- yeah. and that kind of stuff. But what resonated with people was the emotions and the themes behind it. Yeah. And that's what you don't get in the movie. So in the in the movie, you get all the great CGI and you get the great spaceships and you get the big sailing ships and you get, you know, all the great actors. But you miss what it's a little bit like the the great the 1974 version of Great Gatsby that we talked about last week. You miss the emotion and the resonance and what made people love it in the first place. You yeah. miss all that all that kind of stuff in Cloud Atlas. I mean, you can't fault him for trying no it is very ambitious um it's very well edited because he keeps all of that it is it is well edited i'll I'll give it that i'll give it that but uh i just think ultimately it's just it it, it, you know people always call books unfilmable and and they wind up being very filmable yeah Uh, you know including like naked lunch you know they're all, all these books are like unfilmable this book i think is probably unfilmable it is almost certainly unfilmable, although they said that as well about uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, which had certain challenges similar to this. And Slaughterhouse-Five is a pretty interesting film. That's true. But that was made during the 70s, you know, when uh, it, you, you had that late 60s, 70s uh, kind of film brat explosion where everybody was able to do things a little bit more daringly, right? Kind of after the studio system, but before the, the, the corporate system took over. And it, uh, you know, I, th- I thought George Hill did a really good job with that movie. I still think that's a really cool film. Anyway, uh, the extras on here I actually think are more interesting than the movie. Uh, a lot of great featurette stuff, including a, um, a thing called A Film Like No Other, which is all about how the film came together. And I actually find the story of how the film came together more interesting than what actually came together. Uh, much more interesting. So uh, there's some good stuff to watch on this. I don't know if I'd recommend a buy, even for people who, who like the book, but... Um uh, I do want to make one quick comment about a movie called Foreplay, F-O-U-R-P-L-A-Y. One word, Tales of Sexual Intimacy. Um, you know, this is a little independent film. Four stories about sexuality in different American cities. Uh, and uh, this thing is a, a kind of a self-distributed deal. And uh, I think it's actually it showed up at Sundance last year. And it was at the Cannes Zen, the, the director's fortnight at Cannes. And it's done a few other uh, festivals around. And I think it's, uh, it's an interesting little independent film. Uh, I don't say that about a lot of films at this level. It's, uh, but it's, it's worth checking out. It doesn't take a long time to watch. 80 minutes. If you want to uh, kind of surprise yourself with something that actually is on an independent level, a little bit more inventive and um, daring in its writing, than, uh, than it, even than it sounds. I mean, you think sexuality in four different cities. No. It's actually a, a nice little experiment. So I applaud them for, uh, for doing this. I think it's, 
I think it's a worthwhile little effort. So foreplay, F-O-U-R-P-L-A-Y, one, one word title. Yay. Uh, Wade, uh, there was a movie last year called 321 Frankie Goes Boom, which seems to have been shortened to Frankie Goes Boom for the Blu-ray release. And uh, it's about these two brothers. One is played by Chris O'Dowd, who has a new show on uh, HBO, uh, created it it by Christopher Guest. Anyway, um, it's about two brothers, and one of them uh, has an embarrassing YouTube video uploaded uh, to the Internet. It makes him – it's a viral hit, but it embarrasses him totally, and he totally disappears until the brother decides to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, resurrect his life in – an amazing act of brotherly love. I'm, anyway, I'm not even listening. This sounds so uninteresting. I, I, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, you know what? There's interesting stuff going on. Chris O'Dowd, I think, is kind of a charming actor. He was also in um, uh, Bridesmaids, which is a comedy I love, um, although it's too long. But anyway, everybody here plays against type just a little bit, which I think is kind of fun. I mean, look, um, what's his name? Ron Perlman plays a post-op transsexual. I mean, how can when Ron Perlman plays a post-op transsexual? The world is coming to an end. You know you're onto something. So there's, a, there's, there's some okay stuff here. It's a little bit vulgar. It's got a decent cast. Lizzie Kaplan is in it also. Um, Chris Noth is in it. I mean, wait, look. Look. Look at that picture. What? Seriously? That is Ron Perlman as a post-op transsexual. Ew. So, you know, there's some, there's some stuff here. It's sporadically funny. Ew. Um, it's, Gross. The cast is very game. You know, ultimately it doesn't come together, I think, quite that well, but there's... You know, it's a decent rental if yeah, you yeah, want, yeah. like, a frat boyish type uh, rental experience on a Saturday night. You might dig Frankie Go Boom. All right, fine. Um, is that worth talking about? No. Okay, then we won't talk about that. It's uh, Lee Leonie. Okay. Which, which, by the way, is a name that I couldn't even pronounce the moment I heard the film existed. But I, I do like Emily Mortimer. I think she's terrific. And here she's, uh, she can, you, she's very pretty and can be very charming. But here she's sort of like almost purposely charmless in that she plays the wife of this very famous uh, Japanese-American sculptor. And uh, it, what's interesting about the film, although it's not ultimately very good, is that it's kind of revisionist where it's another one of those like the, the power behind the male throne, the male creativity, is a woman. So if you like exploring those sorts of themes, then you might like Leonie, L-E-O-N-I-E. Um, it looks beautiful. It's sort of in that, you know, Merchant Ivory-esque shooting at the magic hour, you know, Got big it. grand vistas kind of looking movie. And I, I do like, like that. Emily Mortimer, but uh, anyway, it's okay. I like that. I love Emily Mortimer. Uh, she's lovely. I will check it out. Um, we're going to move into some uh, catalog stuff now. And probably wrap the show out with this, unless we can blow through it and still have some time for, for some music titles. But uh, Crime Wave, Blu-ray DVD combo pack from uh, Shop Factory. This is a fantastic cult film that uh, has never been on DVD or Blu-ray before. This is kind of a big deal, uh, for at least for certain people. And it's a big deal because it's a Sam Raimi film. It's one of those kind of uh, fringe Sam Raimi films that uh, everybody always talks about, but no one seems to have seen. And it came right after The Evil Dead. And it just sort of vanished. And it was, uh, you know, another, it was a Bruce Campbell thing. He brought Bruce Campbell back, and uh, he's, it's a small part, but it's, it's certainly uh, worthwhile. But the interesting thing about this is that this very strange, unusual, weird movie um, about, it, it's kind of this strange neo-noir crime film about exterminators who are going to try and kill somebody. Um, it's co-written with the Coen brothers. Sam Raimi wrote this with Ethan and Joel Cohen because they're all childhood friends, right? They all, they're all kind of tight in that same circle, and they all kind of uh, grew up to be very, very successful. And uh, I don't think a lot of people realize they actually collaborated on this thing. The Cohen brothers took time out from their career, which was burgeoning at the time, to write this thing with uh, Sam Raimi. And uh, is it great? No, it's, it's just weird. It's just kind of quirky in that Sam Raimi way. But, uh, it, you know, for people who've heard about it, it's definitely worth a rental. Maybe not a purchase, but definitely a rental. Uh, Wade, let's wrap out. Of course, I'm making that call. Let's wrap out with the Henry Fonda collection. This is uh, a package collection from the good folks at uh, Fox. We're not wrapping out, are we? Well, we got the rest of the Fox stuff. Uh, okay. A few more Fox stuff. Uh, box collection. This is the Henry Fonda collection. Now, Wade and I always uh, complain that box sets always wind up with, like, you know, two good films and uh, three terrible films. But you know what? They did a good job. I mean, there's a lot of good films in here. You have Jesse James. Uh, which is uh, Fonda with Tyrone Power. Drums Along the Mohawk, great, revolutionary war film. Grapes of Wrath, of course, fantastic. The Return of Frank James, Immortal Sergeant, whatever. 
Um, it does have Marina Howard in it, but whatever. The Oxbow Incident, which is a great, great all-time classic. My Darling Clementine, White Earp, uh, one of the best White Earp films. Daisy Kenyon with Joan Crawford, can't beat that. The Longest Day, which is one of the great uh, war films. And The Boston Strangler, which is like, okay. Um, so there are some good films here, man. I mean, this is, uh, if you like, if you're maybe your parents or grandparents are into Henry Fonda, this is all, of course, on DVD, which is a bit disappointing. But uh, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten films here, and at least five of them are absolutely terrific, and the rest are watchable. Only Immortal Sergeant is not really a, a, a good one. But ultimately, the Henry Fonda film collection is uh, one of the better uh, film collection sets I've seen. They haven't been doing those a lot lately. They kind of backed away from that. There used to be, you know, Tyrone Power, Elizabeth Taylor, Spencer Tracy, and they... they, they Nobody backed, was buying them. Nobody was buying them. They, that just didn't... The star power didn't have the allure that it used to have. In fact, qu- real quickly, before I get into the last titles, there's a very interesting article this week on Variety that's about that very thing, that is talking about the marketing campaigns for a lot of these, these movies, like, and they point specifically to stuff like Elysium and The Lone Ranger and all these posters. If you notice, the, 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 the one-sheets... For all the big summer blockbusters, don't show any stars on them. They don't show any stars' faces. It, the whole new thing in studio marketing is about th- is selling the concept, getting people interested in the concept, the, because nobody's going to see stars anymore. So rather than show Matt Damon's face, that doesn't get you in, but you show the back of a guy wearing some kind of futuristic exoskeleton, suddenly that gets that like stirs anyone, everyone's inner gamer. They're like, I mean- ooh, it looks like... Uh, Looks like a post-apocalyptic thing. I mean, Tom Cruise is it. I mean, he... I don't know who else... Denzel Washington? No? Tom Cruise, man. He's... uh, Don't you think? He's the only one. I don't know. Who else is out there? I don't know. Not DiCaprio. I mean, like, now, the best you can hope for is that... Is that the performers are the icing on the cake. True. That's it. But ultimately, you're not seeing a film. We have the 50th anniversary. I know, Mark, right? I want one. You got one. Yay! The 50th anniversary edition of The Great Escape, which is such a great film. 20th Century Fox and MGM uh, finally do a really, really good job here. Uh, not a lot of extras on this thing. There are just a, a, you know, eight featurettes plus. <gasps> finally on Blu-ray. Wait. Give uh, me this. Wait. No, Donkey, wait. I, would you let me get to it, Donkey, please? I love this good, movie. Good grief, man. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. You know, we're talking about a different movie right uh, now. No, we're not. We're talking about this movie. <laughs> no, we're talking about The Great Escape. Oh, are you going to give me this? No. Oh, uh, the Great Escape. I love this movie. 50, yeah, it's a great movie. It's so good. I know, and we're going to get to it in uh, just a moment. The Great Escape 50th Anniversary Edition. Jeez, man. I love this. It's, it's terrific. So I, I, you know, I rewatched it like a couple months ago. It's great, man. Because I, I have it on DVD. Elmer Bernstein music just rocks the house. Uh, John Sturges never made a better film. I mean, here's a guy who was really just a really solid workmanlike studio director, and he just killed it. With this film, and never did, never replicated that success. Uh, and worth also noting is the screenplay co-written by, based on the Paul Brickell, uh, Brickhill book, but the screenplay co-written by James Clavell, you know, who did a lot of work as a screenwriter back in the day, and he brings that epic Shogun uh, Taipan vision to this thing, and it's just great. And of course, you know, The Great Escape inspired so many other movies, and along with uh, with Stalag Seventeen was basically the inspiration for Hogan's Heroes, which is probably its greatest claim to fame. Because really, Hogan's Heroes is, you know, that's sort of the pinnacle of this stuff. Anyway, uh, all you got to know is that the artwork that they choose for the cover of this thing is Steve McQueen on a motorcycle. And is there anything else that could possibly be more iconic? Absolutely. In, in this film, sure. Yeah. This and, is it. And, James you know, Garner, Donald Pleasance. Richard Attenborough. Richard Attenborough. That's right. Yeah. The pre-Jurassic yeah. uh, Park uh, Richard Attenborough, that's pre-Gandhi right. directing James, James Garner and Charles Bronson and James Coburn and Steve McQueen. How much more testosterone can a movie take? Yeah, it's the best. That's just, I mean, if you had John Wayne in this movie, it would literally become just a gig, I, I don't want to say it. It would be vulgar. Uh, the, the other movie that uh, Mark was just flipping out over is the long overdue uh, Blu-ray release of The Verdict. <gasps> it's from, so good. From 1982. A movie that kind of got buried in 1982 uh, during the Oscars. You know, it's a great movie. But 1982 was the year of Gandhi and E.T. and Das Boot and uh, Tootsie. It's a great year for films. It's an amazing year. I mean, think of that. Those, are, those were the five big films at the Oscars that year. Those are the five nominated directors, you know? Uh, the, the, the Sidney Lumet. Um, Wolfgang Peterson for Das Boot, uh, Sidney Pollack for Tootsie, Attenborough for Gandhi, who wound up winning, and Spielberg for E.T. When was the last time we had five films nominated in any category to match that? That was an unbelievable quintet. That's an incredible bunch of films. Anyway, The Verdict, uh, finally on Blu-ray. 
And uh, really one of Sidney Lumet's uh, last great, great movies. I, I don't think, this may have been the, the la- everything was downhill from here. I don't think he did another film after The Verdict that was as good as The Verdict. Uh, you know, I liked the first half of Q&A. Yeah, but it's it's not the verdict. The verdict is no, no, really no, ain't the verdict. The verdict really just it just nails it. Everything about the verdict is just great. It, the verdict I I've often heard sometimes described as the last great movie of the seventies. Even though it's nineteen eighty two, it's sort of like what you got the cinema of the seventies. This was the last gasp because all those other movies that I just mentioned, those are very, very much movies of the eighties. Tootsie is very much a movie of the 80s. It's an 80s comedy, and E.T., of course, is very much a movie of the 80s. But, like, the, the verdict almost belongs to 1975. Well, because it's, it's, it's about very flawed people. It's just, it's just great. In a time when you can show people being just epically flawed and on a personal and professional it's, level. It's the, it's the movie that Paul Newman would have won Best That's Actor right. for if he weren't up against Ben Kingsley playing Gandhi. Ugh, he would have. He won it anyway. He, he, I mean, it was... And then they gave it to him for Color of Money, which is lame. It is lame. But anyway... Uh, verdict is 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 really good on Blu-ray. The, uh, the it's a darkly photographed film. Rent it, rent it right now. You got to get it. It's a darkly photographed film, and the and Blu-ray just catches all those shadows. They did a really nice job here. I got I got to finally credit the Fox. Best. They've really done a good job. Um, you know, the grain is there. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely transfer. And there's some really good stuff on here, including Sidney Lumet on the craft of directing, which is outstanding. Uh, the audio commentary, of course, with Sidney Lumet and uh, Paul Newman is it was recorded quite some time back because Sidney Lumet has now uh, passed away, as is Paul Newman. So uh, they have not come back from the grave to, uh, to do that uh, commentary. But it's really nice to hear the two of them really just digging in and uh, telling you all their secrets. And Sidney Lumet is such a great talker. He's just a great talker. Wait, keep talking. All right. And uh, Robert Redford, another uh, icon of the, uh, the era, who we last week talked about in uh, his misbegotten performance is uh, Gatsby. Uh, he also was in a movie called Brubaker, which features uh, some pretty cool Lalo Schifrin music and not much else. Stuart Rosenberg, uh, a director who really should have had a much better career, never really took flight, uh, does a decent job here. The uh, the whole thing is the story the true that based on the real tr- story of Tom Merton who was a uh, superintendent in Arkansas prison and uh, kind of turned the whole thing upside down but it uh, never it, the, the movie's kind of so so and very middling and then John Steinbeck's Viva Zapata with Marlon Brando and Gene Peters um, this is uh, another one of those strange movies uh, that uh, people kind of come back to again and again and debate whether or not it's actually any good or not. Uh, it's the story of the uh, revolutionary Emiliano Zapata with Marlon Brando in a very peculiar role that I am not fond of, but uh, some people think that he's really good. I don't agree. Uh, Anthony Quinn won an Academy Award in his supporting performance here, but it's kind of the one thing that stands out. The movie is just very peculiar and not a uh, real feather in the cap of Ilya Kazan. Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess if you read the, read the Steinbeck novel, don't necessarily watch the movie. And with that, we are done. And it uh, looks like Mark's already out the door. Mark? Oh, okay. Mark's gone. We got to go. See you next week.